Hi, this is the See You Next Tuesday podcast. We have dirty words and shit potholes throughout the entire episode. Our name literally spells cunt. How could you not know what was coming? Thanks for listening. Welcome to another episode of the See You Next Tuesday podcast. I'm Jesse. I'm Amanda. It's been a minute. I mean, sure, we do this every week. Yeah, totally. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so you went out my um, 13-year-old did? I do, actually. This is good. Okay. So I'm sitting at work, and I get an email on my phone. Because I do check my personal emails and my texts and my Twitters and my Instagrams and everything else at work. Who doesn't? And if you say you don't, you're fucking lying. Everybody does. Everybody does that. Yes, ma'am. I'd probably get more work done if I stayed off my phone. But anywho. Yeah, doesn't matter. I get an email from Netflix telling me that someone in California has logged into my Netflix. <sighs> and I'm like, oh, hails no. You're not stealing my Netflix, motherfucker. And so I sent out a text to my entire family saying, is anyone in California on my Netflix? And everybody's like, the only one that responds is my husband. He's like, well, I'm pretty sure I'm not in California. And I'm like, okay, great. So <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I jump on my Netflix and change my password to something crazy. Yeah. And so I changed the password and my husband's like, okay. I was like, okay, I'm changing the password. And he's like, what'd you change it to? And I tell him, and he's like, his response was, wow, no one's going to guess that. As soon as I walk in the door that night, my 13-year-old's on his laptop on the couch. And he goes, mom, the Netflix password's this, right? I go, no, I had to change it today because someone in California was logged into our Netflix and he starts laughing, and I go, what? He goes, yeah, that was probably me. I was like, what? What are you talking about? He goes, yeah, so I was watching Netflix and advisory, but I can't log in on the school's Wi-Fi, so I had to bypass the school's Wi-Fi and get on a VPN, and you never know where that server is. And the look, girl, the look on my face, because I had no idea what the fuck that kid was talking about. <laughs> You're like, okay, you lost me at bypass the server. <laughs> you were like, is this heat? Am I watching a, a, a crime being committed? Like, what the fuck is happening right now? I was like, you lost me at bypass the school's Wi-Fi. Yeah. I'm like, how do you buy, what? What? First of all, how do you find, that? that is a really good question. Like, how do you find a VPN to VPN in two? It's like a fucking program you can download? I, I, girl, I don't know. I don't know. And then, and then I said, son, I sent out a text on the family text. Cause we have a text with everybody in the family. Right. Like a group text. Like you're like, Hey, what the, I, I said, I sent out a text asking who was in California on our Netflix. I said, why didn't you say that's me? And he goes, I'm not allowed to be on my phone at school. They'll take it away. I go, you're also not supposed to watch Netflix at school. And yet, here you're we are. Passing the Wi Fi, VPN inning off of like a fucking server in California. Bro, that is some next level shit. I will say, 
What did you first? What did you react after that? After he told you what happened, were you like, "What the, f- what?" I just said, "Well, the password got changed." And he goes, "Well, what is it?" I go, "If you want to know what it is, you can go find your phone and look at it." Snap. He goes, "You're not going to tell me." I go, "No." <laughs> you were just <laughs> mad at him for not saying anything, so you were just like, "Forget it. I'm not going to tell you." I would tell everybody what my password is, but I don't want people stealing my Netflix. Because <laughs> it is next level. Honestly, honestly, I do, I appreciate the ingenuity. And that's what I was going to say is like, kids these days, God, I'm fucking 95. But it's true, have grown up with the technology that we have not. So for them, what he just said, like, I'm going to bypass the server, you know, VPN, was like a total normal thing. Like, yeah, everyone does that. And you're like, no, we don't. I didn't. I'm no, older I, than the internet. Right, right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think I am too. I think I am too. Like the public internet or like the... We're not... No, you're you're not older than the, the internet internet. The public internet, yeah, we're older than that. Yeah, because what was it, 95? Okay, girl. Let, do you want to know when I had cable growing up? It was a box this big. Yeah. It had a cord connected to my TV, and it had this little thing that went zoop back and forth down the box. Oh, at the bottom? Oh, I never tried. It was kind of like a... It wasn't like a roller, but kind of. At the bottom of the TV, where you could choose the channel like this, like a, like on a horizontal... Yes, I know what you're talking about. Radios were the same way. I mean, I'm, I'm just saying, I'm fucking old as shit. You ain't lying. Me too. But I mean, I think, you know, older and wiser. Right? So, yeah. Well, now I want to learn how to do that. You can talk to my 13-year-old next time you're at my house. Absolutely. And I'm going to ask him about everything else, like on the streamings as well. Well, yeah, because um, my friend Liz, our friend Liz at Talking Shittature, yeah. she has dubbed him the indie podcast IT guy. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. And that's taking nothing away from Pod Mechanic, by the way, who was incredibly crucial and helpful for oh, no. podcast. Oh, no. No, no. But she just had now a question. Now we have two. She just had a question, and I was like, I don't know. And then I was like, asked him, and he was like, yeah, you would do this and this and this. And then I was like, hey, I got the answer. I asked my 13-year-old. And she was like, and he is now the indie podcast IT guy. He is, truly. <laughs> okay, I'm going to have to come to him. Clearly, we need... Two people's help just to run things, to make the, the things happen. Here's the thing, that we can't tell him that he's actually being beneficial because then he will blackmail us for money or things. Oh, that's right. He's the same one who's like, if I do dishes this time, what will I get? Yes. This is the same If I need child. to pass by him, like, you know, our couch is U-shaped mm-hmm. with the big ottoman. If I need to get out that way, he will hold his legs on the ottoman and try to bribe me to let me out. So I have to go around the other way. Just, Unless I karate chop right on his knee the right way and he has to move his legs. <laughs> karate chop on his knee? I mean, not, oh my God, don't call CPS. Not in a hard what you way. Mean. Just like, get your, get your foot out the way. Yeah. Yes. Get your legs. Yeah. If you, Y'all who have 13-year-old boys, y'all understand. <laughs> it's a shit show. Yes. Are you ready for your apology now? I guess. You kind of made me nervous. What What do you, you have to apologize for? Okay. I have to apologize for tagging you in all these 
win books post mm. and the future win books post that I will be tagging you in because I don't have friends and sometimes I have to tag more than one person and that throws you in the loop. <laughs> okay, I'm glad you addressed this because I was like, because at first I was like, okay, that's weird. Maybe it's for the podcast, you know, because nope. we have talking literature and all these other books. We read books, you read books, like, right? And then I was like, oh, okay, no, it's consistent. And then I was like, eh, do you, girl. You know what I mean? I'm like, eh. So um, my friend Liz at Talking Stretcher. So me and Liz, like, we uh, message all the time. Okay. About, because she'll message me. She'll be listening to our episode, and she'll message me about the episode. And then it'll, like, naturally just form into, like, conversation about stuff. Right. And actually, my husband was teasing me the other day. Um, because we we're messaging about something and he goes, Ooh, you're cheating on Jesse. I'm going to tell on you because, <laughs> um, I'm not allowed to have any other friends. Um, oh, one is enough. <laughs> Pot hubby's like, yeah, one cut it there, bud. We're good. <laughs> we're set. And so, um, she taught me how to win free books because I love to read. Okay. I love to read. I love books. I have, you've seen my whole wall. Yeah. I have a library in my house. Think of like the Beauty and the Beast Disney version house moment. We all know that moment. That's her house. Yeah. So, um, she taught me how, she taught me how to like enter for these free books on Instagram. And so you have to tag friends and sometimes one is enough. But sometimes they want you to tag like three friends and that's rough for me. So I got to add you in there. That's fair. So I apologize <laughs> for tagging you a lot this week and for all the future tags that you'll be dragged oh, into. Oh, okay. So you're saying like, this isn't over until I win a fucking book, bitch. <laughs> and then I'm going to continue because then I'll have felt the high of the win. Right, 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 right. So just in other words, what you're saying is gear up. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Fair. Thank you. I pr- I accept and appreciate your apology. Was that an apology? What yes. I'm sorry for what I have gotten us into. Okay. And are you pre-apologizing now? Are you pre-pardoning yourself for the future as yes, well? Yes. That okay. way I don't have to keep on keeping on <laughs> apologizing. <laughs> All right. Yes. Accepted. Okay. Yeah. You yeah. know I'm a ride or die. It's, it is. Hey, this is one of those like friendships you have where you know like what we're getting into yeah you know my crazy crazy. (laughs) yeah you know my both sides yeah both sides like you looked at me a few times and been like are you on planet earth right now and I'm like I don't know I don't know but from forgetting things to which okay I'm gonna issue apology I'm sorry to you and to any listener out there who has commented on a post or like and I have not gotten back to you. I promise I'm here. I just sometimes, you know, just loop a doop. Same for you if I've left you on read, on read on a message. Like, oh my God. Like, what I'll do is I'll open the message and be like, okay, I'll get to that later. And then it's read, so I'm I don't see the little notification. And then I forget to go back to it. I mean, like I'm sure I've done that. But that's my apology or, to you. Or I accept because I'm sure I've done that. <laughs> or I've read it and I thought that doesn't need a response. And you're like, 
why is the fucking cunt responding? <laughs> okay, and that's another... Okay, I'm glad you mentioned that. Because, like, I also was taught hmm, it's you have to respond to things like you every single time and so but but what I found myself doing is being the the person with the last word and not intentionally because I was taught to thank you you're welcome have a great day you as well you know what I mean like yeah, yeah, like yeah, that yeah, yeah and then I'm like fuck okay so I'm not gonna respond so I think the same thing I'm like oh she may think I'm a giant bitch for not responding but I'm like training myself you don't have to respond to everything. Yeah, sometimes I read things and I don't think it requires a response. It doesn't. No. And no. So if you ever think I should have responded and I didn't and you're like, you fucking cunt. Why didn't you? Why? <laughs> the if, hell are you? Yeah. If, the hell? Just say, why Why didn't you respond? And yeah. I will say, because I didn't think you needed one. You, <laughs> you're an adult. You know. <laughs> exactly. Okay, we've hashed out our... We're good. Thank you for therapy time with Amanda and Jess. This is our therapy moment. (laughs) I just want to apologize for entering... I'm not sorry for entering book contests. No, dude. Books are great. I love to read. I know. I've set myself up for failure already this year for like trying to read 100 books. We'll see. It's month one and I haven't finished one. So doing good so far. It's what... I've already read... At least four books. How do you find the fucking time? I read every night before bed. Okay. Um, ooh, Saturdays and Sundays are my reading time. Oh yeah, because you got a full. You can do a whole big chunk. I sometimes can read a whole day, a whole book on a Saturday or a Sunday. That's in, that's amazing. How big? Two, three hundred pages? Yeah. Oh my god I think I'm a fast reader you are because like for me it takes I have to sometimes go back and reread also because like I'll start thinking of something else I'm like why am I focused like what the hell but yeah that's impressive I love to read that's awesome I think it was an escape for me in childhood and mm. I've always read yeah well it's a it's a healthy way to escape that's for sure yeah reading is fun yeah Speaking of, you saw our BFF. Well, I don't know if you grew up with them like I did. Probably not. Reading Rainbow, LeVar Burton, has a podcast where he reads to you. Shut your face. Yeah. He'll read a short story to you. Like, I listened to one. It was like about 45 minutes. But he picks an author who has a short story, and he'll read it. And I'm just like, I love you so much. Just hearing his voice reading to you. It's just so comforting. Highly recommend. Not that he needs the publicity or anything, but he kind of... What? Well, you know there is a there is an indie podcaster, Ratchet Book Club, that reads books to you. I did not know about them. I know I did Ratchet Book Club. Mm-hmm. Watch me writing this down. She's writing it down. She's writing it down. <laughs> okay, this is bad podcasting. Ready for our man cunt this week, everyone? I actually, I'm really excited to see who you're going to do because I saw some names. <sighs> I creeped a little. I saw some names and I was like, the fuck. You creeped. Well, you creeped. I was, I was, I was just noticing the titles. That's all. Why you gotta be a creeper? I wasn't trying to be weird about it, but did you read my book report too? No. Yes, you did. I didn't actually, because I was trying to focus on mine. <laughs> all right. My man cunt is the monstro di frenze or 
The Monster of Florence. Oh, shit. Yes. Okay, cool. I'm glad you're doing this one. So he killed at least 14 people near Florence between 1974 and 1985. And all the victims were couples who were alone most of the time in a parked car in an isolated country area at night. They were parking, y'all. Oh, yeah. They were parking. Nothing wrong with a little bit of parking. It's good time. If you tell me you have never got it on in a car, you're a fucking liar. You're lying. You're lying. And Or, you, you know, if you have not experienced the joy, you should. I'm not saying you have full-on car sex. Just a little... Little something, something. Little first I mean, or I've, second. Little second or third. I've done it all, but... Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, it's not exactly um, a comfortable no. way to do it. But, you, you know, it's a life experience. Mm-hmm. Unless you're my kids, don't do that. Um, the monstro would always attack on moonless nights when most people didn't have to work the next day, either due to a holiday or it being the weekend. He would never attack the same area twice and would move from one part of Florence suburbs to another. And the Mostro would wait until the couples were actually getting it on and their defenses were down before he would strike. Smart. I mean... If you're going to yeah. do it, then... Wait till the pants are down. Yeah. He would creep out of the dark and he would ambush the couple, um, shooting both, and then he would finish the couple off... With a knife, um, but he was not done. He would also disfigure the female victim. Whoa. Okay, there's a lot there. So he would. He had two modes of murder. That's rare. Normally, it's like they stick to a thing: knife, strangulation, shooting. He was shooting, then just to make sure it was knife. Then he would disfigure the woman. He hated women. Yeah. He hated women. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's he a had mommy, mommy issue. issues. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, um, he always used a 22 Beretta pistol loaded with a Winchester Series H bullets. The firing pin left a very specific mark on the shell casing, and the bullets that were used were produced between 196 produced before 1968 and had an H embossed on the back. So this was very specific. Yeah. Very, very specific. And and that's dumb. If you're trying to get away with it, mix up your shit, you know, like buy different guns and different bullets and not telling you to do crime at all. I'm just saying if you're going to do it, be smart about it, you know. So um, you would think that it would be easy, easy. to locate them, right. right? Who bought these type of bullets? Nope. What? Nope. 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 So um, it was not difficult to locate who did it. Um, but we're going to come circle back around. So let's get to what the medical examiner, Maro Marie, who did all the autopsies said. Um, he said, this case is one of its kind in the world, so who can we turn to for help? Um, Francisco de Fazio, the criminologist who wrote up the case profile, agreed with his sentiment, saying, in all the case studies on criminology, no case can be likened to the monster of France. And I will tell you what his profile was later. Oh. But what actually makes this killer unique is the M.O. 
He admitted his crime solely in the remote country areas on dark nights, hiding and waiting patiently for the right moment to ambush. Mm-hmm. Um, he had very long and uncommon pauses between attacks, usually a year, and in one case, he waited up to seven years between attacks. Okay. Um, he never carries out any sexual activity of any kind with his victims, either pre- or post-mortem. He actually prefers no interaction in any way whatsoever with either couple, ambushing and rendering them lifeless in a manner of seconds. And he does not act out on instinct or impulse, but plans out his crimes carefully and rationally, choosing nights with little moonlight, waiting to the optimum situation on which he finds a lone couple in an area where he is certain there are no hidden voyeurs. Wow. Okay. So we're talking precision, obviously, so he couldn't get caught. Although, like I said, the bullet and gun thing, that's pretty damn precise if you're going to locate a killer. Um, but then also the, the thought of like where it's around bank holidays and weekends and things like that and taking a year off makes me think he works for a bank, a government agency, a something where he might have to move. That's where my head's at. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. So the Florence countryside is actually famous for its hills and tourists come every year to admire the fields of sunflowers the poppies and the same fields um that these couples are choosing for their alone time um and that is where the last place they end up breathing their last breath so the crimes were all the more intriguing because they were taking place in these beautiful suburbs Right, where people are assuming, God, nobody would do anything horrible out here. Yeah. Which, why would you? Yeah, I mean, it's idyllic, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, I need to, like, reverse in time for a hot second. Before the first Monster Florence murder. Um, so, on August 21st, 1968, there were two crazy kids spending some alone time in a parked car in a wooded area in La Ostiga which is a small town on the outskirts of Florence. There was a woman, Barbara Locia, 31, and the man was Antonio Lo Bianco. He was 29. They were both married just to not each other. Oh, oopsies. And Barbara's six-year-old son was actually asleep in the back seat. Girl, (laughs) you were, all right, that's happening. Yeah, so you know. Yeah. Mm. A person or perhaps several people snuck out of the bushes and shot and killed the couple before they even knew they were in danger. At 2 a.m. and a mile away, Barbara's six-year-old son rings the doorbell of a house. The owner is surprised by not only someone ringing their doorbell at 2 a.m., but a child nonetheless. Um, The kid tells him, let me in. I'm tired and my father's homesick. Um, Then you have to take me back home because my mommy and uncle... Uh In Italy, it's common for children to call their parents friends as aunt and uncle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. um, Are both dead in the car. The little boy will later remember after the shooting a man carrying him on his shoulders and carried him to the house singing a popular song to him along the way and rang the doorbell because the little boy was too short to reach and left him on the doorstep. Oh, my God. That is... 
fucking crazy. Think about that. Like, could you imagine being that little kid? You know what I mean? As you grow up, when you finally realize what happened. What? Yeah. Whoa. That's a lot to unpack. I mean, I will say at least the guy didn't kill him. They, thank God. And he took him to a house. Here, take the kid. But yeah. That, is that how he fucked up, though? Is that how he fucked up? So, ironically, oh. this case was solved quickly. <laughs> Barbara was married to Stefano Mele, who was much older and had been described as mentally disabled, mentally slow. Oh. So, not only... That Miss Barbara was bumping uglies with several other men, including three brothers, the Vinci's. She was um, really keeping it in the family with that one. She she was going with three brothers? Uh-huh. On top of the man she was murdered with. Damn, girl. Okay. So the Vinci's um, were from Tuscany, and they were living and working in Florence, they were all manual laborers and petty mm. criminals. Okay, I get it. I get it now. So, Salvatore Vinci had actually even lived with Barbara and Stefano for a while. That's not weird. So, at all. Given everything that I told you, who do you think was convicted of the crime? Her husband. Because he'd be like fucking pissed. Yeah. He'd be like, yeah, no, I'm going to kill my wife and her, her, one of her lovers. So, yeah, right? it was her husband. Yeah, of when course. You would think it would should be Salvatore, you know, the petty criminal. But no, they pinned it on Stefano. Yeah. The mentally disabled husband. Yep, of course. So here's the evidence they had against him. Oh, no. The paraffin glove test proved that he had recently fired a gun. He confessed, but then, re- con- then retracted his confession, but then confessed again, also while accusing the Vinci brothers of being involved, but in the end admitted to the murders. Again, okay, so do we know what his IQ is? You know what I'm saying? Like, if he's yeah. mentally, like, at a 60, 70, 80, like, uh, you can't, you can't, he doesn't know what he's saying. Exactly. He doesn't know what he's admitting to. So, the police believed he had a motive. Um, I don't... Disagree. His wife was fucking literally everyone else. Yeah, yeah. there's definitely a motive. Um, he was supposed to be at home sick in bed, but that didn't make make a convincing alibi. No, because nobody saw you. So how do we know? So remember, Barbara and Stefano's son said that a man carried him on his shoulders to the neighbor's house. Yes, he would know if that was his dad, right? Yeah, he'd be like, my dad carried me here. So let's see what they had to say about the little boy's story. Um, He told different versions of the story. Well, of course he fucking did. He was six years old. I mean... Yeah. It doesn't mean he was lying. It means he was six years old. It was 2 a.m., you fucking morons. Yeah. Okay, so here here's our his stories. He was there when the shootings happened. Um... So, along with some other men, including one named Salvatore, but uh, but later he said he hadn't seen his father at all and had not seen anyone he recognized. So, so he he's kind of like flip-flopping a little yeah. bit. Like, yeah, I saw this guy. Oh, wait, no, I don't remember yeah. anybody. Well, the other thing about like interrogating kids, and I saw it on whatever crime doc show I was watching, um, 
You have to be extremely careful not to influence them. And you have to be, there's special, there's people that like specialize in this situation. Exactly. For this reason. Child psychologists. Yes. That they just basically know how to ask them a question without a lead, a leading question. Not, you know, not to lead them towards an answer. It's just more of a generalized. And kids also have a hard. who was there? And kids also have a hard time remembering a specific time versus a time before that so yes yeah Yeah. very but obviously when when was this what year was this 1968 yeah no and then that's not happening yeah and then of course like from what i understand of the italian justice system it's really weird and not like ours is much better but it's very subjective it feels like and it feels also like if the prosecutor thinks you're guilty then you just are you know like in, congratulations we've all decided you're guilty even if you've done not, you know, like this yeah. it just feels very old worldy yeah so and you know at first he said he got to the house by being carried on a man's shoulders but later he said he walked to the house on his own bare feet through the woods at night so again yeah six years old so here's my two cents because i know you all care what my tooth cents. that's why you're listening baby yes exactly so i think the little boy was probably trying to tell them what they wanted to hear based on their comments um that was either said directly to him or what he overheard them saying Mm. because that's what six-year-olds do especially when they think they are either in trouble or there's a good possibility that he thinks he is going to be in trouble if he doesn't help them find out who did it or if he just wants to help. That is just my opinion. Take it, leave it, let's move on. Yeah. So despite all that, Stefano was sent to jail for 14 years. Mm. He was given a light sentence due to the fact he suffered from, and I'm quoting, not my words, quoting, an infirmity of the mind okay and was also deemed mentally and intellectually dysfunctional okay hello if that's the case then how the hell did this person exactly come on exactly so stefano claimed he dropped the gun at the crime scene a claim his son collaborated in one of his versions of his stories but it was never found okay Okay. But I mean, like, if this guy is that precise, why would he drop that, that? That's not something I would think would happen. So, Stefano killed his wife and her lover out of revenge. She's now in jail. Case closed, right? I hope not. Well, let's move on. Oh. Six years later, on September 14th, 1974, Stefani Pettini, 18, and Pasquale Gentil 19 were parking in a small countryside town of Borgo San Lorenzo. Nice. In the Mogolo area, obviously outside of Florence. You, okay, snaps for your pronunciations. Yeah, girl. It's really like Spanish, and I want to give everything a. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's super close, isn't it? <laughs> so, okay, I'm going to stop saying outside of Florence. Every town I say is going to be on the outside of Florence. Okay, from here on out. Got it. Everyone. <laughs> okay, so the Lovebirds were actually regulars at this spot. It was their favorite spot to go. Hi. They had been coming here 
um, for some alone time for over a year. Good for they them. They were 18 and 19. You know, they needed. Yeah. And just absolutely. Get it. How else were they going to get it on at yeah, such a young Mom age? and dad are up their asses, and there's no way it's going to happen in either of their houses. So, um, their bodies were found the next morning with Pasquale inside the car, leaning on the car door on the driver's side, and Stefania on the grass behind the car. Oh, wow. Stefania was... Did I give a shit pothole? The whole episode, girl. Okay. (laughs) Everything. Yeah. She was found undressed and stabbed just on the surface, but had been stabbed over 90 times. On the surface? Mm -hmm. So they weren't deep wounds? It was just like kind of a... They're being killed by the gunshot and then being stabbed, but not deeply. Weird. She had also been violated with a thin branch of an olive tree. The only thing that had been taken for a few pieces of simple jewelry that Stefania wore, um, all the money was still there. The murder was unsolved, and Florence and Olive, Italy, considered it a one-off. Because they're not connecting the car. This is also in the 70s. Even in America, we didn't have what was known. We have not named the term serial killer until, like, the late 60s, early 70s. Right around mm-hmm. this time is when we started to adopt that term. Yeah. So even in other, I doubt other countries believed that there was such a thing as a serial killer. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, this is just a random thing. Oh, and then here's... But think about that. That's actually worse. Wait, you're so you're telling me there's like... 10 fucking assholes running around killing one person? Isn't it better if it's one, one person? person? Killing 10 assholes? Yeah, wouldn't that be Does easy? Man? Good God. So June 6, 1981, Carmela Denuncio, 21, and Giovanni Foggia, 30. Oh, you know he's 30. hot. Giovannis are hot, dude. I'm just saying. No, I'm I love just the saying. name Giovanni. I do too. Um, went to their usual makeout spot on a dirt road. Usual makeout spot. I love usual makeout spots. Yes, because it's kind of scenic and cute, but it's I like out of the way. Pod hubby. Aww. If you're listening, <laughs> I want a usual makeout spot. He's, He's going to be like, yeah, can it please be our bedroom? Yeah, right? Like, that's... Just make out with me. That's all I want. <laughs> yep. <laughs> what do I have to do? <laughs> Feed me. Take me to a nice dinner. Seriously. I love food. Girl, we tried this new um, Italian place down the road. Yeah. Um, by the Target that we go to. Uh-huh. Have you seen the pizza place that's over by the, you know where the Torchy's Tacos is? Yes. You know the other strip? Mm-hmm. There's that pizza place on the end? Nice. Oh, my God. I got this pasta. It had um, artichokes and grilled chicken. Oh, that sounds really good. It was so good. I'm going to have to check that place out. I bet the pasta in Italy is way better. Oh, the guaranteed, but it doesn't matter. It's fucking pasta, dude. Like, you cannot go wrong with pasta. Oh, You cannot. I could eat three times my weight in pasta. Same. Like, whenever someone goes oh, we're going to have pasta tonight, and they pour out, like, the appropriate amount of pasta for everyone per the box. I'm like, no, a box is one person serving, period, right? Yes. For this whole, like, oh, but we're only going to, no, bitch. There's four of us. You're going to need four boxes of pasta. When you were growing up, I don't know if you ate this. Did you eat that suddenly salad box pasta salad? (laughs) No. No. 
But I know you're talking about suddenly salad. I grew up eating that shit, girl. It was the best fucking shit ever. I love how it's like a threat. Suddenly salad. Like, what the fuck? Is that what it's called? Because you know I misname stuff. I'm really hoping it is what it's called because I love it. Okay. (laughs) Shit, I hope that's what it's called. Anywho, back to Carmela and Giovanni. Because that was so rude that I got on that track. I love it. So they went to the normal makeout spot in Sandisi. And it's just a hop, skip, and a jump away from the Sandisi Club, which is a popular nightclub. Nice. Yeah. And you would think since they were so close to the popular nightclub that they would be safe, right? Well, yeah, because you're thinking, oh, there's a lot of people around and, you know, I'm just right up the road from it. Or, and the other thing is, is, you know, if there's like bouncers, they're going to see something and be like, oh. See something, say something. Not 1981. Yeah. Because um, the next morning their bodies were found, both shot and stabbed. Mm. Yes, that is correct. Um, So. (laughs) You are correct on the suddenly salad. Giovanni was in the driver's seat, half closed half-clothed, Carmela was found 20 feet away in the car, 20 feet away from the car with her jeans pulled down, and her pubic area had been cut out and taken. Ooh, honey. We shit potholed this, right? I mean, the whole episode. No money had been taken. The contents of Carmela's handbag was emptied and scattered around the car, but the handbag itself was found near the car. The police immediately realized there had to be a connection to Stefania and Pasquale's murders in 1974. And in fact, the ballistics proved the same 22 Beretta long rifle had been used with the same Winchester bullets with the letter H embossed on the shell. There it is. So the genius police realized that Stefania and Pasquale's murder was not a one-off like yep. they originally thought. Yep. And they might have a manic on their hands. A manic. Not a manic. I kind of like it. I like a little better than serial killer. Manic. The killer was strong and robust since the women had not been dragged, but had been lifted and carried out of the car and down a hilly slope where her body was found. Okay, fair. Yeah. Okay, gotta love 80s police work, y'all. Oh my God, I'm excited. You're gonna love this. 80s, whoop, whoop. So their first line of investigation was peeping toms. Uh, which, I mean, yeah, they're on, it's true. It is an escalation crime. So That's I need to give y'all a little cultural lesson. Ready? Italians live at home with their parents until they get married. So it is hard to have alone time and privacy... Um, and that is why it is was common for couples to go park in secluded areas at night. That makes sense. So, I mean, yeah. if you're thinking, why are all these people in Italy going to park? It's because it was the only way for them to have a little bow chicka bow pal romantic time. Right. Without mom, like, leaves the door open, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. You're not <laughs> going in the bedroom with that boy. Exactly right. And so you're like, damn it. So they would go to, you know drive to the secluded spot with a view of the city lights, I mean, whisper sweet nothings in each other's ears. It's a vibe, for sure. But along with that were the peeping toms that would hide in the bush and so they could get their own thrills mm-hmm. of watching these intimate moments. And you know what? 
gross. Ew. Gross. But also think about the time. Porn wasn't like at our fingertips either. You know what I mean? It was like on paper. <laughs> you know, you had to like buy or send away for porn. So that may have been there like, hey, you're here. I'm here. So you want to know what I was thinking? Hmm. I was thinking of the dad and Back to the Future in the tree with the binoculars yes. looking in the window. <laughs> that is a really... Yes. Well done. Thanks. Yeah. So there were some fuckers out there that had like night vision okay. devices Chill. and cameras for taking pictures and film. Not even playing. What? Okay, so, that's, that's the line. That's the line. There it is. So... I was thinking, like, the police were looking for these peeping Toms as suspects, right? Of course. Nope, bitch. They were hoping they would be able to give them leads or tips oh on suspicious men lurking in the woods. Witnesses? They yes. were cutting call them as witnesses? Yes. Jesus. Hey, you fuckwads. They are the suspicious men lurking in the woods. What the fuck? This is so Italian, though, dude. It's just it's so eighties. It's so eighties, and it's very much fucking Italy. Like when do, guys are gonna do what they're gonna do. You just have to fucking work around them. And you're like, no, no. How about they do that in the privacy of their own home, like the rest of us? Like that <laughs> they're, is they're so in the bushes. God. They're gonna be the ones that saw the killer. I mean, they're not wrong. It may have, maybe. But the other thing here is like. They didn't think they're the actual killer. Oh, my God. How much do you love that twist? That was, um, oh, my God. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. <laughs> well, I'm now the fuckwad for doubting this police work because there was a peeping Tom who actually saw something. I knew it. Enzo Spalletti. With oh, his last name Spalletti. Uh huh. It's like the sound that he was making in the bushes is his last name. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Someone had heard Enzo talking about have seen two dead bodies in the woods, so the police had nothing else, and they jumped on this lead. And he took Enzo, who was a husband and a father, into custody. And it seems Enzo was being arrested for his reluctance to talk about why he was in the woods that night, and witnesses confirmed that they had seen his car parked near the crime scene. But Enzo had denied being there. Well, yeah, what, of course he would, because he's, like, out in the woods jacking off. <laughs> On, like, a lover's lane. I don't think it's something you want to yeah, get out. He doesn't <laughs> want his wife and his family. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's... So now he was suspected of being the murderer of Florence for the simple fact he allegedly knew about the death of the couple before officially reported by the news. Okay, so here's the thing, dudes. Hey, just just admit you were masturbating. <laughs> just admit you were yeah. masturbating, man. Do you want to be a killer it's seriously, or a masturbator? Fuck it. We, like I said, we all do it. There is nothing wrong with it. So if you're going to cop to something, uh... Murder's worse. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. The guy was really, he's really going to go down for murder because he refused to say I was jacking off in the bushes. I mean, yeah. Okay. So, you know, with Enzo being custody, the people of Florence, they thought that progress was being made on the case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not so much. Mm. Mm -mm. So, Susanna Combi, 24, and Stefano Baldi, 26, 
were parked in the car about 10 p.m. in the rural area of Calanzo. And um, this was not a regular spot for the couple. It is believed they actually they stopped because they just needed an intimate spot. The next morning, um, the bodies were found with Stefano outside the car wearing just a shirt and underwear. Again. Susanna had been carried to a spot nearby. Her private parts had been disfigured. Ugh. And it seems this was becoming part of the killer's MO now. Yeah. He had added to it. Is he also escalating? Like it's getting more closer and closer together. So he's kind of like in a manic phase, essentially. Like kind of going through this like... I have to do this. I have to do this. I have to do this. No. No? Okay. Mm -hmm. So he's still very calculating, but Mm -hmm. what he's doing is escalating. Yes. Okay. So the contents of Susanna's handbag was spread out all over the car, but the handbag was not taken and no money was stolen. Mm -hmm. So the killer is actually, so this killing actually was an anomaly um, for the monster of Florence for a couple of reasons. The murder was committed on a Thursday, while all the previous murders were committed on a Saturday. Because the murders were committed on Saturdays, it was believed the killer preferred to act on the weekends because he did not have to get up for work the next day. Mm -hmm. While this murder was committed on a Thursday, the next day, Friday, was a national labor strike. Exactly. And the majority of the workers were off work the next day. See, that's that's what I'm saying. So he's obviously employed by somebody who he is like a nine to fiver. You know what I mean? Yep. It's not like odd hours like, oh, he's a, a server or he's a warehouse um, worker or, or a fisherman. Yeah, fisherman or a night nurse or something like that yeah. where it's like odd schedule. Yeah. So the prior murders had been committed in the summer. And this murder was committed in the autumn. It was believed this murder was committed off-season because Enzo was in custody and the killer wanted to send the you've got the wrong guy message. Which, thank God he did. And Enzo's like, yes, thank you. I just want to masturbate in the woods. <laughs> That's all I wanted, man. I just want to get my rocks off. My wife won't fuck me anymore. God dang it. <laughs> The previous murders were on moonless nights. This time, there was quite a bit of moonlight. The theory is, again, he just wanted to act out to say... Hello, it's me, bitches. To give that fucking... (laughs) He just wanted to act out to say... To, you know, don't give that fucking peeping Tom credit for my work. Yeah. What are you doing? I did it. I did it. Yeah, he's proud of his work, and he's like, take a look. So this time, the killer was a little sloppy because he left behind his shoe print in the mud, size 44. Based on this, the police determined the killer was tall and robust. So that would be a U.S. size 11. Yeah, he's, yeah. That tells me nothing, but anywho, yay police work. (laughs) They let Enzo go from custody and back to, you know, spying. His wife was like why were you held i have no idea so weird they saw my car they yeah. thought i looked like um the monster of florence because somebody saw him they said it looked like me not because i was masturbating no 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 <laughs> bitch please fuck me so i won't masturbate anymore. seriously <laughs> so when pod hubby asks you for a makeout sesh just think of this moment <laughs> I'd be like, so is it this or masturbate in the woods? I need to know where we're at on this. Yes, what what scale? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. 
I couldn't help it. And this is why we're going to hell. This, yes, exactly. June 19th, 1982. Antoinella. I love that name. It's a pretty name. Mingalorini. Mm-hmm. 19. And Paolo Men- Menedari, 22, were parked on a street near some bushes in... I've lost my pronunciation skills. <laughs> Halfway through, we're gone. <laughs> Beccarano. The car was actually visible from the street, and some of the couple's friends had driven past them and c- could clearly see who was in the car. Okay. Yeah. Um, and they actually chosen this spot because Antoinella was scared of the monster at Florence. Yeah, she was like, look, we can, but I want to make sure, as weird as it is, that we're in public. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they were just like off the road enough to where you could see the car and see who was in it but maybe not see everything right smart so a couple of things happened when this with this attack that had not happened before paulo was able to try and escape nice in the attempt um to escape his attacker he was able to start the car but since the car was parked Front and away from the street, he was having to reverse out while being shot at. Oof. Y'all, this is why you back in no matter where you park. Oh, is that why you back in? Yes. Uh, easy escape. Boom. Out the way. So, I learned this in my concealed handgun class. No, I have. <laughs> yeah. So, when you pull forward into a spot uh-huh. and you back out. Somebody can set you up to, like, pretend like you hit them, Mm -hmm. and then you get out of your car, and then they can attack you. Oh, shit. You back in, you're pulling straight out forward, you can see everything. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. And then if you have to run somebody over, because they're shooting a gun at you, you can't. And you can also see where they're shooting, and okay, okay, I see. It's just safer. It's safer to, yeah. Hmm. So, Paulo was able to get the car across the street while going in reverse. Nice. But he got the back wheels stuck in a ditch, and he wasn't able to move anymore after that. The autopsy showed that Paulo had been struck by a bullet while trying to drive away. Oh, So, if he hadn't gotten stuck, he might have actually gotten away. So close, dude. But the killer was not even phased because he shot out the headlights. So... he was trying to shoot out the headlights to so people wouldn't stop. Yeah, and see, like, what's that car doing over mm-hmm. there? Both Paolo and Antoinella were shot, but Antoinella was spared the disturbing ritual of something happening to her genital region. Um, probably because he didn't know when or if someone was going to drive by, so he had to, like, get it get in and out quickly yeah i would assume Um, he he didn't have the time that he wanted right which was a good thing because not long after a car did drive by they did see the car in the ditch they stopped to see if help was needed and a police and ambulance were immediately called and this was the only time a victim was taken to the hospital alive oh wow Paula was still alive, but died shortly after arriving at the hospital. So the prosecutor, Sylvia Della Monica, who was investigating the case, decided to try to set up the killer and had the newspaper release a story saying that Paolo was able to say a few words before he died. 
not true, but they need to find the killer. Right. I mean, it's a one of the oldest tricks in the book. Absolutely. Lie. Which, hey, if it works and it gets the right person convicted, yep. <laughs> gotta do what you gotta I'm do. I'm here for it. Yep. So this provided to be a good idea because not long after, an envelope arrived at the Cabrineri station in the Borgostani, in Borgostani, in the heart of Florence. The envelope contained a newspaper clip- clipping of an article about Barbara and Antonio, who were killed uh, in 1968. Uh-huh. You know, the one where Barbara's special needs husband, Stefano, had been convicted of the murders? Right. On top of the clip- clipping, someone had written... Why don't you take another look at this case? Ooh, shit. So that's what they did. And they found that the gun used in this murder was the same gun that was being used in the murders that had been happening since 1974. And the bullets were not only the same type, but were from the same box. Oh, jeez. I mean, if Stefano was the murderer and in jail, who was committing these crimes now? Yeah, exactly. Okay, police, maybe Stefano didn't commit the first murder. <sighs> Fucking morons. Yeah. You just picked the easiest person. Yeah. Let's just get this done, over and done with. Mentally disabled. You must have done it. Sure. Your wife is fucking everyone under the sun. Makes sense. So we're just going to do this. Oh. <gasps> yeah. Lazy. So up until then, they did not connect that first case to all the other ones. So the police began to look at the Vinci brothers and all of the retracted statements and accusations that had been made back in 1968. And this made the police wonder if the event had happened like Stefano had said. Hey, y'all. No, it didn't. Y'all did shoddy police work, but whatever. Let's see. Yeah. Let's see what you do with this. So they began to think that Stefano was just a pawn to the Vinci brothers and that maybe it had been a setup. Uh, you think? You yeah. think? You, you think? The brother that made it look like Stefano killed his wife when it was really the brothers and one of them still had the gun and that had never been found in 1968. Yeah, you think? There's you in your noggin, guys. That's exactly what happened because Stefano was mentally disabled and you just thought hook, line, sinker. Yep, he did it. Guilty. Off to jail you go. Yep. Jesus fucking Christ. Yep. Ugh. So since someone was finally doing some detective work, they had their first lead in the Monster Florence case, the Vinci brothers. The police determined that out of the three, Francisco and his older brother, Salvatore, who, remember, lived with Barbara and Stefano at the time. Mm-hmm. So it, he lived with the brother at the time. No, wait. So, so the Vinci brother lived with Barbara yep, and, and her husband at the time. At the time. Mm-hmm. And this was, so basically they're saying that the Vinci brothers did it? Yes. Yeah, so now they've decided that two of the Vinci brothers. Oh, just because they live with them? That's their, that's their deductive skills now. We're just going, oh, well, then it's not this guy, it's this guy over well, here. they're like, okay, so we're going to take a look. They've taken a look at everything from 1968, and they're like, okay, we're going to take a harder look at Francisco and Salvatore. Right. And so um, they realize that after the murders of Antonella and Paulo, when the prosecutor 
had the news run the story about Paulo talking, um, Francisco Vinci's car, mm. one of the brothers, okay. he, it was found in South Tuscany, hidden in the woods. Okay. Suspicious. Yeah. So Francisco was taken into custody on suspicion of being the monster of Florence. Sure. It's found scene of the latest crime. Same gun as 1968. We get the thing and the mail. Yep. So now we're going to take him into custody. Because that's what we do. Yeah. September 9th, 1983, in a residential area, Galuzzo. Galuzzo? Really? Uh Uh-huh. Nice. That's a hell of a name. (laughs) Two German tourists, Uwe Rush, 24, and Horace Meyer, 24, were just chilling in their VW camper. How much do you love that, a VW camper? I love it. So these German tourists are coming over to Italy going like, hell yeah, dude, let's go party and shit. Because you know they drove their VW camper from Germany to Italy. Absolutely. I love this. Because in my head, that's what they're doing. They're traveling around Europe in this VW camper. I'm just picturing, like, these two dudes, like, from Germany, like, super happy and, like, listening to, like, you know, EDM or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? On the way. What's that? God, the Lufkin Balloon song. Oh, yeah. No, I did not. I did love (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Living their best life. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so it needs to be noted that one of the men did have a slight built with long blonde hair and at a glance could have been mistaken for a woman. The men were shot through the windows of the van initially and then entered the van to finish the job. That's when he realized that it was two men in the van instead of a man and a woman. Since the killer had shot through the windows of the van, which are higher up than a car... It gave the police an idea how tall the man must be. They figured he must be at least five foot ten. Okay. You know, I think they're just making shit up. Seriously, like, what? Okay. <laughs> Grasping at straws. So, this killing took place while Francisco was in custody, so the police had to let him go because, obviously, he didn't do it. Hello. Hello. What about the guy who's in jail right now? Hello, what about that guy? Like, are we going to let him out? Or are we just going to be like, oh, yeah, no, no, leave him there for a second. We just got to figure this out. What? They're leaving him there. God dang it. So they're continuing the hunt for the monster. Mario Rotella, the investigating judge on the case, believed that the Vinci brothers had to be involved with all these, mu- with all these murders. And since Francisco was not the answer, Salvatore was taken into custody along with Giovanni Mele. Stefano's brother, who's the one in jail, and Piero Musiarini, Stefano's brother-in-law. Again, what the hell? So, while Giovanni and Piero were not part of the Vinci family, Stefano had mentioned them in part of one of his stories about what happened the night of his wife's murder in 1968. Giovanni and Piero would have been just would have just as much skin in the game because Barbara's infidelities were an embarrassment of the family name Mm. and they would have just as much motive to want to get rid of her, according to the police. So not only was she an embarrassment to Stefano because she was bumping uglies with anyone who would stick it. Yeah. um, His brother and brother-in-law, obviously, 
wanted to take her out because she was embarrassing the entire family. Yeah, disrespecting everybody. Yeah. I love how they're dragging her name through the mud through this whole thing like she's some whore. And it's like, I mean, I'm not saying her actions are correct. I mean, it's a lot of cheating. But like also, she's the victim here, guys. Like way to be total... Toxic masculine, you know what I mean? Just like awful I, men. I mean, I just like all these euphemisms for <laughs> I mean, I don't care who she was spreading her legs for. Exactly. I just really like saying bumping uglies. <laughs> <laughs> Horizontal mambo. That was another one. Yeah, I just I really don't care. I just wish her kid hadn't been in the car. Yeah, that's weird to me. Like you couldn't find a babysitter? Like leave him with why didn't she leave him with the dad? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I, that's where the dad thought she was, is picking up the kid somewhere. Yeah, I don't but know. But still, what the fuck? Any, yeah. <laughs> Anywho. Yeah. So July 29th, 1984. Pia, I love that name too. That's a great name. I gotta go to Italy. Rotini, 1980. And Claudio Stefanci, 19- 1921. No, he's 21 years old. <laughs> Bless my own heart. <laughs> oh, by the way, my goal for this year, I have one. What is it? To get a passport. Oh, yay. I like um, this. They were parking at their usual spot in Vicio. Mm. And at 9.45 p.m., they were both shot and stabbed to death. Pia's body was dragged to a nearby area where the killer performed his usual mutilation, but he is now escalating and he removed her left breast. Oh, shit. This time he also left behind two clues. A handprint on the top of the car, and it made the investigators believe he held the gun in his right hand and steadied himself on the top of the car with his left, meaning he was right-handed. Hmm. Knee marks on the side of the car confirming his height of five foot nine to six feet. Um, but guess what? This killing occurred while suspects were in custody. So that means Salvatore, Giovanni, and Perio were all taken off the suspect list. It's like y'all are making more murders happen by not doing your job. Like literally. <laughs> I mean, it's what the I, fuck? I just can't at this point. Yeah. So, September 8th, 1985, Nadine Morat, 36, okay. and Jean-Michael Cravicelli, 25, a French couple, had put a tent up off the main road in Via Scopetti, Scopetti mm. near San Cassiano. And the Mastro de Farese opened up the front of the tent and surprised the couple. Jean Michael, who was a trained sprinter, managed to burst out the front of the tent and try to run for his life. Oh, shit. Only after being shot in the arm. But he ran in the wrong direction. Oh. That's called karma for leaving Nadine behind, you little bitch. <laughs> Deal with it, bitch. Bye. <laughs> Straight up. He's like, like bye, Felicia. <laughs> Fuck you. I didn't even think of that. That You're is right. karma in action. He's straight up. Oh my god. He wasn't like, come on, let's go and like try to carry her or whatever, or like get her out of there. No, he's just like, bye. You're, you I'll deal with this. So one direction was the street and the other direction was the woods. 
And unfortunately, karma led him into the woods and the killer caught up with him and finished him off with his knife. Always strafe, guys. Always strafe. Remember this. (laughs) Once done with Jean Michael, the killer went back to the tent and performed his mutilation on Nadine's body. The next day, an envelope arrived for Sylvia Della Monica, the prosecutor who ran the fake news back in 1982. The address was written like a ransom note out of letters from a magazine on the envelope. Uh-huh. They cut out letters, you know. I've always wanted to send a letter like that. Me cut too. Pod friends, if you get a letter in the mail oh with cut out God. letters, it's from us. It, we're promised we're not like kidnapping anybody. We're just, we just always wanted to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I lost my spot. So there was a spelling mistake with the word Republica. Um, there was no letter or news clipping or photo in the envelope. Instead, inside the envelope, there was, they found a sliver of Nadine's breast. Boo! So the police were afraid of what this meant. They were afraid this was a warning that the... Mostro de Frisde was escalating and the attacks were going to get more violent or even, even if that's even possible. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you should have done your job a long time ago before you started doing this behavior. So do you want to know what it really was? No. Well, yeah. It was a goodbye letter because he never killed again. What? 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 So wait, so he just mailed a piece of boob and was like, bye, that's his mic drop? That was his mic drop. Oh my God. This is like giving me Zodiac. You know what I mean? So who was the Mostro de Frise? Yeah. Well, let's go over the first murder in 1968. Yeah. Um, let's go over it as if the 1968 murder was part of the serial killing. Which it definitely was. So here's reasons to include it. Okay. Same gun and bullets, same type of victims, young couple in a car in an isolated area. Um, same isolated area, same victims, same isolated area, same woody area, suburbs of France. Here's the reasons to rule it out. There was a clear motive. There was clues pointing to a specific group of people. No knife used, no mutilation. There was a third party present, um, Barbara's son, who was saved. But also... I'm going to be devil's advocate and go back. It probably was this person. This was one of his first ones. And as we can see, they get more and more intense as he goes along. The shootings and the stabbings stay the same, but then what he does to the women increases. So at the time, he was like, shoot, stab, did my thing, blah, 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 I'm out. And plus with the kid there. He didn't stab in the first one. He didn't stab in the first one. He yeah. just shot. Yes. See, so he he's learning as he's going what he likes, what he doesn't like, and what works. So, yeah, the first one's going to be a little different. So, remember Francisco de Fazio, the expert criminologist? Yeah. Who came up with the profile? Mm-hmm. Well, here it is. So, a solitary killer who does not work with any other people. A bachelor and likely has no significant relationship with women at all and perhaps any other people. Mm. Likely impotent due to the fact that no sexual acts were ever committed at the crime scene and also in light of the olive branch that the killer violated his first victim with. Is about 40 years old in 1985. Is probably right-handed. More comfortable using a knife than a gun. 
is a lust murderer. Killing excites him. Mm-hmm. Has no stable job. Um, the investigators also asked the FBI for help, and they came up with this profile. Okay. Male, about 45 years old, comes from the area of the killings, manual labor, average intelligence, bachelor, um, lives alone or with an elderly person, lives near a place of the first killing, has no relations with women, and likely has a sexual dysfunction, may use alcohol or drugs to pump himself up for his crimes. Mm-hmm. So, in 1985, after the murders, um, they just the police like, received the anonymous letter. Um, I don't know what is up with Italians and anonymous letters. I, I just can't because, you know, they received the first anonymous letter and the second anonymous letter. Yeah. Um, they also received another one encouraging them to look into Pietro... Passiani, a dangerous, violent man who mistreats his wife and daughters. That's a quote. Okay. Possibly. Looking into Patrio's past, they found out that he was, when he was 26, he stabbed a man to death in 1951. Okay. So here's my story time. So Pietro saw his girlfriend going off into the countryside with another man. So he followed them. I mean, I would. Yeah, right? Like, what's this? Yeah, yeah. What's this I'd now? be like, what's, what's this mess about? When he saw them, he started um, to get... When he started... Uh, when he saw them to start getting it on, he jumped out of his hiding place and stabbed the man to death. I would not, I would not do that. I'd follow them, but I would not yeah, stab them. For death. sure. Yeah, no. He raped his girlfriend next... To, next to the dead body and stole the man's wallet. Pietro served 13 years and now Pietro was the newest suspect for the murder of Florence. Okay. So who is this dude? It was said he was an he was uneducated and worked as a farm worker his whole life and was very violent, a miser, a chronic liar, and a known peeking, peeping Tom. On the flip side, he was also self-taught taught artist and poet whose hobbies included painting, drawing, and writing poetry. His fault combined with his artistic talents is what made the investigators believe that Pietro could be the person who could be the one responsible for these violent crimes, yet perfectly orchestrated. Mm -hmm. So um, he was tried on really shaky circumstantial evidence and despite all that, he was found guilty in 1994. In 1996, the case went to an appeals court, and because the evidence was so weak, the, yeah. convinci- the conviction was overturned. Thank God, because, like, again, like, th- th- prove it was him. I mean, yeah, he's a piece of shit. Don't get me wrong. He sounds like an awful person. Probably should have been in jail for many, many other reasons. But besides that, like, he didn't do this, I don't think. Like, come on. Well, here's what the evidence was. A notepad and soap dish from a German manufacturer that supposedly belonged to the German couple. Again, what? A 22 bullet found buried deep in Pietro's vegetable garden. Witnesses saw a car that looked like Pietro's near some of the crime scenes. And Pietro lived near some of the crime scenes. Okay, well, they all happened in Florence. So if you lived in Florence, you lived near some of the crime scenes. Right, that, that doesn't... So... Yeah. 
the appeals court basically said, and so? Here right. are some of the reasons why they deemed him not guilty. The killer was considered impotent, and Pietro was planting his seeds all over town. He had wives, lovers, and went to see sex workers. Oh, wow. Money and valuables were never stolen from the victims, and Pietro was a miser who found every opportunity to make easy money. Hmm. He was 60 at the time in 1980, and he was 60 at the time of the 1985 attack and had a heart condition. So they were pretty sure he couldn't run down a 25-year-old um, athlete running for his life. Probably not, no. The killer was between 5'9 and 6 foot. He was only 5 foot 2. Yeah, no. <laughs> and he had an alibi for the 1985 murder. I, I, I don't know how this person was convicted to begin with. I don't, I don't understand that, that at all. Uh, yeah, I what don't... What did you present or not present to that jury? I don't even know how they do. Um, I didn't look into the legal things in Italy, so... It, yeah, no. So a sex worker named Gabriella Giabelli, her pep and her... Berto Gali and a friend of Pietro's, Gian, Giancarlo Lotti, came forward as Pietro's verdict was being overturned with this gem of a story. Oh, God. According to Gabriella and Norberto, Juan Carlos, John Carlos, that's his name, John Carlos's car was parked near the scene of the 1985 attack. So the police decided to investigate Giancarlos further by getting some evidence by phone tapping. Of course. And um, they found, they allegedly found out he was at the scene of some of the murders. Giancarlos claims that Pietro shot the victims and a friend of Pietro's, Mario Vanni, remember the, or, sorry, Vonsi, remember the Vonsi brothers? Yeah, yeah. So. So they're saying there's two people in it mm -hmm. now. He claims that Pietro shot the victims and a friend of Pietro's, Mario Vonsi, used the knife to mutilate them. Giancarlo said his job was just to be the lookout but the more pressure the police applied, he admitted to until to be on the lookout. But the more pressure the police applied, he finally confessed to killing Uwe and Horst, the German couple, in 1983. Of course, he finally confessed to a murder. They weren't going to let him leave until he did. The conviction of mm. Juan Carlos Lotti. And Mario Vonsi was the only trial and upheld conviction of the monster of Florence case. Pietro died of a heart attack in 1998. And he was out of prison at that time. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. So case closed, right? I hope not. Jesus, like, somebody figure this out. So no. The general consensus is the case is still open. Yeah. John Carlos is not considered a credible witness by many people. And at the time, he was an alcoholic living in a halfway house and had no way to support himself. It is widely believed that John Carlos confessed for recognition and to improve his living conditions because jail was actually a step up. So if they're not buying it, then who was the monster of Florence? 
Yeah. Nobody knows, but I have some theories. Please. I love a good theory. <laughs> Tell me. I have several. So there's the Mario Spezzi theory. Mario Spezzi is a journalist who reported right from the crime scenes and Ooh. covered the case firsthand from 1981 on. Mario believes that the killers related to the Vinci brothers and were involved from the first murder in 1968. Mario, whose theory involves how the same gun used in 1968 murder and the later murders, he thinks that someone related to the Vinci brothers got the gun and used it to carry out copycat murders. He claims that the murderer was a petty criminal and not in prison during any of the killings. Well, obviously. (laughs) No shit. (laughs) And he was away from Florence between 1972 and 1981. And the killer had a marriage annulled with the official reason being inability to procreate, which could be interpreted as impotence. So the source I was using didn't say who Mario thought the Florence, the murder, the monster of Florence was because he wrote a book. And you're supposed to read the book to yeah. like to find out who to determine yeah, yeah, on yeah. your own, like do your own research kind of thing. Well, no, to get his answer. He wants you to buy the book, to read the book, oh, to get his to get answer, the answer. Who the this book is. Okay. So you know what I did? You bought the book. No, I didn't. <laughs> I just fucking Googled. And according to the Atlantic, Mario thought it was Salvatore Vinci or someone close to him. If I had bought the book and read the book and got Salvatore Vinci or someone close to him, I would have lost my shit. Yeah, because again, I don't think so at all. I don't think the Vinci brothers had anything to do with it at all. I mean, I I think they're probably petty criminals, sure, but I think it was one guy. Oh, I think it was one guy, guy and I think it was a Vinci, but I don't think it was Salvatore. Okay, tell me the other theories. I want to hear. So, Nino Filasto. Nino Filasto. Velasco was the attorney who defended Mario Vinci. He believes that the 1968 murder was the first killing of the monster. Mm-hmm. Nito thinks the killer is or pretends to be a police officer. Crazy, right? His reasoning is that... That seems right, actually. Think it, about it. He His reasoning is that a couple of times the car registration was found on the floor of the car under the driver's seat as if it's been taken out to be shown. Also, an anonymous witness, here's the anonymous bullshit again, confided in him that it was just before one of the killings, they had seen a sus police car driving slowly in the area where one of the murders occurred, with only one officer, whereas Italian police officers patrol in pairs. As a police officer, the killer manipulated the police work and along commits the murders on the days according to some sort of religious or cult-like occurrence. Okay, so, (laughs) like, okay, I kind of, I this is the theory that makes more sense to me, actually. Think about it. Government worker, policeman, right? So he's going to either have those holidays off or he might have to work them depending on his shift. And think about that, right? As a policeman, you know how to do this shit. You have a knowledge. And... He knows how to shoot a gun, but he prefers a knife. Okay, all of this is adding up. Why else would anyone at all give someone the time of day if they're pulling a car up beside you and you're making out with your girlfriend? Commits the murders on the days according to some religious or cult-like occurrence. That I 
totally disagree with. I think it's literally just like a convenience. I, I think, think it's just he really like wanted he his clients to be innocent. Oh, for sure. No, the first part though, totally agree with. And think about that. All because this is shoddy police work. Like it is, we can all agree. So for it to be that fucking bad, it would make sense. There might be someone in the mix kind of going like, well, check out this fucking lead. You know what I mean? And like I think it was just in the 70s and 80s and all police work was pretty shoddy back then. <laughs> I mean, assume. let's get real. <laughs> so now we have Michelle, Michelle Guati. Mm-hmm. The chief of police investigator on the monster case from 1995 to 2003. So Michelle considers t- this to be the official solution of the crime, and it is surprising. Oh God! Let me guess. <laughs> Vinci Brothers. Vinci Brothers again. To a large extent, the result of his own investigation into the case. Michelle believes that Pietro was the killer working with Mario and Juan Carlo. Okay. You already did this. I read this and I rolled my eyes so hard. I thought they were stuck. Seriously. They would act... No, ready for this. They would act on commission being paid for the body parts they brought back to the person who ordered the murder. The commissioner of the murders was supposed to be a mysterious person belonging to the social elite... You know, like a doctor or a professor. No. The body parts were then used in satanic rituals or fetish orgies, black masses, (laughs) or devil offerings. What the fuck? By the satanic set that took place underground that has yet to be uncovered. Oh my God, where did he get this idea? Was he high? Was he high or am I so high I misread the entire paragraph? (laughs) Off his ass high. Michelle says there is evidence that is point to a relationship between the murders and devil worship. Tell us, Michelle. We really want to hear this. Well, there was a strange octagonal stone in the form of a pyramid that was found at the crime scene along with circle stones. You mean a fire pit? Shut the fuck up. This is why. With a cross in the middle nearby. And Michelle believes there are symbols used by satanic cults. Oh, you mean churches? Yeah, churches. Yes, I believe it is a church that uses crosses. Yeah. Michelle was obsessed with finding the person who paid to have the murders carried out and create a special squad for it named Gide. G-I-D-E. I don't know how to say that. Two men were eventually investigated, but they had done nothing. Michelle was just a little off his rocker. No commissions have ever been found. Michelle, however, is a fiction writer writing crime novels. There it is. Yeah, he... Yeah, he is. Look at the fiction he came up about these yeah, murders. He's a real LRH if, of his time. You know? A little uh, Scientology yeah. for me. No, man. This no. is also what the 90s when the satanic panic was still like in full force and shit. Like, Ugh, we have all these like, you know, Satan worshiping cults all across yeah, America I, I, and the world. So there was a fire pit with a cross in the fire pit. So I'm thinking like church came and had like s'mores and told Jesus stories. Yeah, for real. Or I don't know, maybe two sticks uh, happened to be laying that way. Like, it, come on. Like, really, guys? Chill the fuck out. Yeah. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. But you know what, man? 
if you're gonna go in, go all in. Go, go big or go home, in. right? Right. He went big or he, he went home. Yeah, maybe he should go home. <laughs> he went real big. So there's then there's Antonio Segnini. I want to be his wife so I can have the last name Amanda Segnini. It's a cute name. It, it fits you. Segnini. Mm. Call me Mrs. Segnini. Um, so he's an author and he wrote the book Truth About the Monster of Florence. I didn't read it. And Antonio doesn't tap dance around it. He says he thinks Juan Carlo Lotto is the murderer. And that in 1968, Juan Carlo was a peeping Tom spying on Barbara and Antonio from his hiding spot. He says that Stefanio's family committed the killings and dropped the gun far away from um, Salvatore Vinci. Juan Carlo picked up the gun and kept it. Um, Barbara and Antonio's murderer was the inspiration he needed to find himself by copying and killing, by copying the killing and committing similar murders. I mean, Juan Carlo was a social outcast who didn't have very many friends and never had a girlfriend. Antonio's theory is that Juan Carlo killed to feel important and read about himself in the paper and hear people talking about him around town. Hmm. According to Antonio, Juan Carlo confessed and put the blame on Mario and Pietro to get himself a lighter sentence, but yet be able to explain the evidence against himself. That's a pretty good theory, actually. That makes sense. That makes sense. And he's a loner. He didn't have a girlfriend. The impotence, possibly, we don't know, but, you know, possibly, yeah. as to why he didn't couldn't interact with women, so he felt inadequate. It's adding up. Yeah. That's another really good one. Now there's Francesco Bruno... He's a university professor in criminology, and he has studied the case in great length. He thinks the killer is part of a satanic cult Good who God kills to provide sacrifices for black magic. No, it's never yeah. black magic. No, it's Satanists not black. Satanists don't do these things. No. Let me just say that. No, no. Th- th- there's not this giant cabal of like fucking Satanists everywhere, y'all. There just isn't, okay? Yeah. Come on. Yeah. So now we ha- I save the best for last. Oh, there's a better one? Okay, yes. now I'm really... I can't wait. Before you say anything, let me read this whole paragraph. Go. Because I have the best commentary. Paolo Kochi. First of all, Kochi. <laughs> Start off strong. Is the author and director of the documentary I Delitti... Del Mostro di Firenze. The Crimes of the Monster of Florence. Y'all, he's got the answer. Paolo says, The murderer is the person who has never been suspected or come into the investigation. You made a whole documentary, bruh. And that's all you have to say? (laughs) That's his answer? That's his answer. That we haven't found him yet is the answer. Mm Mm-hmm. Bro. And, and he hasn't... Oh. Bro, you wrote a book and made a documentary, and that's all you have to say to us? It, it, seriously. And also, now I'm like, shit, we could write a book. If this motherfucker can write a goddamn book that says nothing... And a documentary? And a documentary? See you next Tuesday. <laughs> coming to theaters near you. It's literally... It's the, it's the Seinfeld of books and documentaries. We will literally do nothing. And... Then see what happens. Because clearly, this guy's a published writer somehow. I bet it's self-published. 
Ooh. You know? I mean, honestly, that's the way to go, man. Is it? Do you know how easy it is to self-publish? No. I've looked into it. Oh. So maybe there will be a See You Next Tuesday book coming your way 40 years from now. So, <laughs> yeah, when I have the time. When we have time. That when I have the time. Exist. We can barely answer emails. Sorry. That's on me. So who is the Maestro de Forenza? Who is he? I don't know. Nobody knows. I know who it is. Mario Vinci. No, I'm going to go with the two, the two strong ones for me. A cop makes a lot of fucking sense, the more I think about it. But also, um, the Juan Carlo. Juan, Juan Carlo. Carlo, yeah. Those two, for sure, because I'm like, it feels more right than the people that they're like just literally grasping at straws with. For me, for me, it really feels like Mario Vinci, the third Vinci brother, that was never really... Um, investigated Mm -hmm. and was the only Vinci brother never in jail when a murder happened. Okay. I could see that too. Was he single and all that shit? Do we know? I don't know. I like didn't deep dive because we're probably three hours in at this point. (laughs) The four hour podcast. Um, Yeah, no, that's interesting. God, that's crazy. Do they have any like, well, they did. They, oh, but it's of the victim. I was going to say, do they have any DNA left? And they have like the boob, but it's her. Yeah. But I'm just wondering, is there, but then touch DNA is still a shaky science even today. Yeah. If he even existed on the thing. So do we have any DNA that we can test against? Nothing? No, because he never, he never raped them. He just, no. Just did his thing and maybe like went home and masturbated or did whatever. They think he's impotent. So he couldn't get it up. At the crime scene, which made him angry, which is why he was like so on about like he mutilating. was probably angry at them because they were getting it on and he can't do those things. Exactly right. That's exactly, and it was like made him feel better to kind of like yeah, I showed y'all. Okay. Ooh, this is good. I like. And it, it falls in as man cunt because he is a dad because Stefano Mele, who was in jail for committing the first crime, was the father of the six year old. In the first 1968 murder. Yeah. No, absolutely. He sure does. Listen and to me justifying my my <laughs> man. Your workaround. You're like, he was kind of a dad around the point. Kind of. I mean, <laughs> no. Stefano Mele was, was a, a dad. Yes. And he was convicted. But he wasn't the guy. Which we all know this. So wait, do they ever let him out of the jail? Do they ever let him out after these other fucking crimes are happening? I don't know. Dude. I'm sure they let him out after he served his time. That's so shitty. Oh, my gosh. That was a good one. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. Hey, you there. Do you like podcasts? Are you tired of the bullshit? Well, this is not the podcast for you. Actually, it is. And we are... The The Lords of Swine. We discuss nerd culture. And we drop every Tuesday on any platform. We're literally everywhere. Trophy Dad this week is going to be somebody that, well, most of us know. I hope everybody knows. Marvin Gaye. Well, yeah. (laughs) I know who that is. Thank you. No, no, no. I know. But, you know, some people don't. If we have any Gen Z listening, maybe they don't. You never know. So I'm going to be talking about Marvin Gaye. And he was born Marvin Gaye without an E Jr. 
born to Marvin Gaye Sr. and Alberta Gaye in Washington, D.C. on April 2nd, 1939. Um, he grew up in a public housing project, the Fairfax, Fairfax Apartments, that had like small homes. They were overcrowded with no running water or electricity. So he essentially grew up in the slums. He actually nicknamed the area with a bunch of friends. They called it Simple City because of it being like half city, half country where they were at. Um, and Marvin was the second oldest child of four with two sisters, Jean and Ziola. I love that name. And brother Frankie. He also had a half brother from one of his mom's previous relationships to Michael Cooper. Marvin was the only one to be named after his father. And it was kind of like this passing on my name crap and he was supposed to like fall like carry on the family line and all this stuff there's a lot of responsibility given to his name whenever he was named so the gays were very religious <laughs> and we're talking pentecostal minister house ooh, of god ooh, religious ooh, let me culty. tell you a little bit yeah a little bit culty they were culty, they were culty. And very much in the line of the Duggars, super strict. We're talking women couldn't wear open-toed shoes. You don't watch TV. You don't watch movies. Like, that's how strict this sect they were in was. On top of that, his father was also very fucking strict and regularly beat his children for little things, like coming home from school a minute late, um, he would quiz them on Bible verses and be like, if they didn't know it exactly right, he would beat them. Like, just a house of horrors, okay? And from what I understand, it was like Marvin Gaye Sr. was the head of the household, the law, and Alberta was just trying to, like, make sure the kids didn't have a total shit life. Like, she was trying to deal with it in her way. Remember, this is the time period when you don't leave your husband for, for shit. You know, yeah. you stick through to the very end, no matter what. So yeah. I'm defending her there because I feel like she was also a victim in a bad situation. And yeah. then she's seeing this happen to her kids and she's like, how can I protect them as much as I can? It's tough. Yeah. You know, it makes me sad because... You should never have to stay in a situation like that. No. Ever. No matter what. No. Just because, like, your religion says you have to and this is going on, it, you need to safety, you know, your own yeah. health and your family's health. So, yeah. Um, unfortunately, most of the vengeance that his father had was taken out on Marvin Jr. throughout his childhood. Um, but it was actually through church that Marvin started playing the piano. And believe it or not, his dad helped to teach him. I guess it was like at a moment where he wasn't being a total piece of shit. <laughs> I don't. So Marvin soon developed a love for singing and was even in a school play at 11 singing Mario Lanza's Be My Love. His mom, Alberta, encouraged him to sing and he would later state that she saved his life by doing this. That's so sweet. In junior high, he got way more serious with singing and even joined the Glee Club. And in high school, he was part of doo-wop groups until 1956. When he was 17, he dropped out of school and enlisted in the Air Force as a basic airman. So, obviously, this had to do with his family life. Well, yeah, obviously. of course. Get the fuck out as soon as I possibly can leave. I'm I mean, leave. let's see. Air Force or stay at home? 
I would choose Air Force. Yeah, exactly. At least I'm getting like a paycheck. You know what I'm saying? To mm-hmm. get yelled at. Like, <laughs> at the end of the day. And in education. And in edu- and like getting away from my family. So, um, obviously, also around this time, his abuse got more and more intense as he grew up. Because, you know, from what I've seen of boys and their fathers, there's like this moment where there can be only one, like a Highlander moment where they fight each other and then they clash and then they... It's like an alpha dog situation. Yeah, exactly. And as the boy gets older, it gets more intense. And if you already have a strained relationship with your father, I'm sure that it was lovely moment in his life. I bet. Yeah. His father was also an alcoholic, so... Oh, that's always enjoyable. Yeah, shocking. After enlisting, Marvin realized that he had actually just traded one strict life for another, so he faked a mental illness to be discharged and was issued a general discharge. He came back home to Washington and became a backup singer and started composing music as well. We all do dumb shit in our teens. (laughs) Whoops! I mean... (laughs) At least he figured it out quick, like, I don't need to be here. I bet it's really not that easy to fold the military. Mm Mm-mm. So whatever he did, it worked. I mean, military people, let us know. Yeah, please, definitely. Um, Eventually, in December of 1960, when he was 21, he performed at Barry Gordy's house for a party. And shortly after, he was signed to Tamla Motown, a subsidiary of Motown Records, which, I mean, do we even have to say what Motown is? If you don't know? you don't know, you can hit the Google machine. Seriously. And then so he had started to finally reach a place where his interests are starting to slowly support him. So he's like, sweet, I got signed, you know, this is a big deal. And in order to really distance himself from his dad around this time period, he added the E to the end of his name. Mm. So that's how it's G-A-Y-E. Also, apparently he went through years of, oh, you're fucking gay, you know, like that. Oh, yeah. And he was like, oh, I'm so done with this. So, yeah, people are stupid. Yes. Homophobic assholes, you know what I mean? Um, So his first album, The Soulful Moods of Marvin Gaye, was released May 1961 when he was 22. Didn't really hit it off big then, so he'd moonlit as a drummer for other artists to make ends meet. He started to learn from other artists how to hold himself on stage and refine his image and even attended grooming courses at John Robert Powers School for Social Grace in Detroit. So he's kind of learning how to be a performer because it's not just about composing and singing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to have an presence his first song to reach billboard's top 100 was hitchhike which went to number 30 in 1962 in october of that year he was part of the motown review concert series where all the artists of the label would tour the country and so like motown had one and then you had like you know like what johnny cash did they had one you know and they would all tour in areas that they you know where their fans were essentially um he also had some hits around the time that weren't collaborations. Ain't that peculiar? Peculiar that were collaborations. Excuse me. <laughs> Ain't that peculiar? Ain't no mountain high enough. And you're all I need to get by. So he was on all of those songs. In 1963, Marvin recorded at the Apollo and taped. And the taped version of that appears on the album. Marvin Gaye recorded live on stage. Can I get a witness? Which was an international hit. This time, he really started to show his range as an artist and composer because he's like composing like ballads and then dance music and, you know, all different types of music. It wasn't like he was like stuck in a genre necessarily. Yeah. Which I think was kind of his appeal too, is like he can do anything. 
Right. He's not just like, you can only do this. Mm -hmm. Like just R&B. It's like, no, I can also do romantic love ballads as well. And, you know, all these other types of music. And I think it was probably also due to survival to make that paycheck. Like, oh, they need a drummer for this type of music. You got it. They need this type of song. You got it. Because he he's so desperate to get out of his family situation and make his own money. Yeah, you're going to do what you need to do. Yeah. So in 1963, at 24, he married Barry Gordy's sister, Anna, in June. And that really solidified the, now you're part of the Motown crew. I mean, you're married the sister of the guy. Um, she was actually 35 at the time. So she was like 11 years older than him. And unfortunately, trauma rolls downhill like shit because he started cheating on her with other women. They eventually divorced in 1965. Well, I mean, he probably had a lot of women throwing themselves at him. And so he was an attractive dude. If you never had that and you grew up in a house with shit, you don't know how to behave. Yeah. So let me give you a little context. His father was a Pentecostal minister who was an alcoholic, beat his children and cheated on his wife so much that he even had a child by another woman. So when this is your father figure... You don't know what a secure relationship looks like, and of course you're going to pick up bad habits. Um, and not to justify this behavior, because Marvin allegedly had a child with his wife's Anna's niece, Denise Gordy, Marvin the Third, and Denise Gordy was 16 when the baby Marvin the Third was born. Mm. Yeah, this is all alleged, okay? And allegedly, Anna, Anna was—I don't know how either really understanding or she just didn't want a scandal because allegedly she faked a pregnancy so that Marvin the third could be hers. Yes. Hmm. But it, it does kind of fit and you'll find out why a little bit later in the mid 1960s, he started appearing on shows like, you know, American bandstand working with Tammy Terrell for duets. He sang the national anthem at the 1968 world series. And that same year I heard it through the grapevine became number one on billboards top 100. So he's living up end of the sixties. He's on a high. He said that success was something that he quote didn't deserve. And that he felt like a puppet of Anna and Barry Gordy. Maybe not a good idea to kind of mix family and business. Yeah. Yeah. In 1969 and 70, um, Marvin stepped into what we more know him today, like a political activist. He said in a Rolling Stone article at the time, quote, in 1969 or 1970, I began to reevaluate my whole concept of what I wanted my music to say. I was very much affected by letters my brother was sending me from Vietnam, as well as the social situation here at home. I realized that I had to put my own fantasies behind me if I wanted to write songs that would reach the souls of people. I wanted them to take a look at what was happening in the world. So he recorded the album What's Going On in 1970 after the police brutality at an anti-war rally in Berkeley, California was shown. And at first when he made the album, Barry Gordy thought, like, this is too political. We're going to lose your crossover audience. Like, this is not going to sell because it's, like, really heavy-handed kind of thing. And Marvin was like, cool, I'm going to go on strike then. I'm not going to write anything else until you let me release this album. And Barry Gordy obviously gave in eventually. And guess what? It reached number one on the charts. Rolling Stone reviewed the album in 1971, saying, Gay has, rede- Gay has designed his album as one ma- many-faceted statement on conditions in the world today. 
made nearly seamless by careful transitions between the cuts. And it is, it's a great album. Like it has all these like really atmospheric qualities to it. It was almost like kind of a concept album too. Cause at the time you were, like we said, an R&B artist. And yeah, that's all you yeah, did. yeah, yeah. You don't do this other shit. So the album changed a lot of things in music because obviously it was the first one that's experimental, but also the political message. And after this, he was encouraged to take more risks um, and get more creative with his music. So he finally kind of got out of the bounds of the normal studio system and kind of like learned how to be himself, but still be a part of a record company. Right, right. In 1972, Marvin met Janice Hunter, who was 17 at the time, and they married in 1977. Yeah, so the allegedly, I'm like, I could see this happening. Yeah. And how old was he? He, ooh, is 72. He was born in 39. So he's in his, what, 30s? Late late 20s, early 30s or so? Like, come on, bruh. Let's let's chillax on the teenagers here, bud. Yeah, that's... Mm-hmm. And now, granted, 1972, that was three years before he divorced his wife, Anna. So, yeah. yeah. The relationship obviously ended that marriage, and he displayed a lot of toxic behavior. Again, childhood trauma. But this, again, was a, he was super prolific in his career because Let's Get It On came out and reached number one on the charts again. Throughout his whole life, Marvin strived to make his father happy with him from his music to his career and success to his relationships, everything. So he was always battling this inner demon that's telling he's not good enough while leaning into the toxic traits that destroyed his childhood because he doesn't know any other way. That and the music industry is filled with people ready to use you. And with all the added pressure, Marvin started doing copious amounts of drugs, mainly cocaine. It's the 70s. Yeah. I mean, shit. Who wasn't doing coke in the 70s and 80s? That's why I want to know. That that list I want to see. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't. Well, we were like, what? 10? 1? Not I'm born just, yet? <laughs> I'm just saying I wasn't. <laughs> so, obviously, no excuse for this behavior. I mean, he obviously could have done things differently. You know, we can all make choices. We're adults. But... It also makes sense why he's like spiraling into this like drug-addled phase of his life. Yeah. And also being poor, growing up poor with nothing, and all of a sudden you have tons of money that you can just do anything with. He's over here buying houses for his family. He's like buying Coke. He's like going on vacations, all this shit. Yeah. So eventually Jana and him separated in 1979, a divorce in 81. During these years, he attempted suicide multiple times, was really paranoid because of all the coke, and lost most of his money going into debt, upwards of $3 million in taxes. So kind of on a downstroke at this point. He flew to Belgium to kick his coke habit, came back, signed with Columbia Records, and made the song Sexual Healing for the album Midnight Love, which skyrocketed again on the charts. This was obviously a major comeback hit, and he received his first two Grammy Awards and an American Music Award for Favorite Soul Single. He had a tour planned, so to stay sober, he was like, okay, I'm going to move back in with my parents in the L.A. home I bought them, which had to be an extremely difficult decision to make, and also, in my opinion, shows his dedication to his sobriety, (laughs) that he would be willing to do that. Yeah, yeah. 
because fuck that shit. No. <laughs> that would make me want to drink and do coke being back in my parents' home. Yes. That's why I'm not in my parents' home. Oh my I God. I would literally, no. Yep. He started to be um, kind of paranoid around this time, which I think is also partly From due the to drugs. Probably withdrawals from the drugs. He started saying to his siblings, like, I'm going to die, something's going to happen, all this shit. And they're like, what is up with you? And then on April 1st, 1984, he was pronounced dead of gunshot wounds at the age of 45. Michael Eric Dyson's book, Mercy, Mercy Me, The Art, Loves, and Demons of Marvin Gaye, described him as someone, quote, who transcended the boundaries of rhythm and blues as no other performer had done. Marvin Gaye's legacy might be one of controversy because, you know, he did do some awful things, but his music, his influence on music is unmatched. He brought a light to the injustices in the world, specifically for black people, and showed his crossover audience what it's like to grow up in the slums or in the street or have a different experience or a different point of view on the things happening in the country. He supported the Black Panther Party's drive to help their communities and fight oppression, but not their support of violence. Many of his political psalms were nonviolent and focused on peace. He talked about black power, anti-war, police brutality, racism, drug abuse, and the environment before anybody else was musically. He brought the story of black people in America at the time and place into the light and gave it a soundtrack. Marvin was not politically active outside his music. His music was his activism. He became an icon in the community and artists like NWA, Rage Against the Machine, and even Michael Jackson couldn't do what they did without Marvin Gaye. He even paved the way for Stevie Wonder, who was allowed to go off script of the strict studio system and started making more music like how he wanted to as well. And as we all know, Stevie Wonder is also very political sometimes in yeah. his music. While he's not a perfect trophy dad by any means, I thought it was important to bring him to light to show that we all have struggles and traumas that we're overcoming, and it's fucking messy. So, I mean, it doesn't mean that you can't shine a light when you can through your struggles. So three years after he died, Marvin Gaye was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. To quote him, I record so that I can feed people what they need, what they feel, Hopefully I record so that I can help someone overcome a bad time. Aww. And that is Marvin Gaye. Oh, that was a good one. Thanks. I'm just really interested in him lately. I've been like listening to a lot of his music on Spotify and I don't know what kind of just made me do this is I was like, no, I don't really don't know much about the guy. Right. So yeah, he, I would say he, and I didn't mention it here. He did have three children, one with Anna and two with Jana. Oh, that's weird. Oh, Anna and Jana. I just realized that too. <laughs> Wait a minute. Um, and, uh, you know, they have nothing but pretty good things to say about their dad for the most part. You know, I mean, you growing up with someone famous, I'm sure it's not easy all the time. Yeah. But yeah, it was really interesting. Just kind of get to know him and why he was politically active when he was. It was so cool. We did it. We did this thing. <laughs> Thank y'all so much for listening. And as always, we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. 
You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, we'll see you next Tuesday.